Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Well, welcome again to our Advent celebration. This is the second week in our countdown to Christmas. As we've been remembering the stories of Jesus' birth that have particularly been preserved in the gospel according to Matthew. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew is the first of the four gospels in our Bibles and begins with these early chapters in which a king is born. But a king unlike any that had been born before and and really unlike any that has been born since. And the question that we've been asking over these four weeks of Advent, the question really that Matthew is seeking to answer is, what kind of king did Jesus come to be? What kind of king did Jesus come to be? Well, last week we saw that, that this king came as a rest for the weary, as one who would bring rest, not just as David had done, to the enemies surrounding us, our earthly enemies, but as the king of kings who, who would conquer even our greatest enemy. We're going to see today, though, that he likewise came as a savior for sinners, to, to not only deal with the enemy outside us that wages war against us, but to deal with the enemy within us, because he came as a savior for sinners. And that's what we'll be focusing our attention on this morning as we pick up in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, and I'll begin by reading it from Matthew 1.18 to verse 25. And I'd invite you, if you have a Bible, to follow along with me, again, as I read from Matthew 1, verse 18 to 25. This is God's Word. It says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an extraordinary story of your son's extraordinary birth. I pray today, though, that as we consider it more closely, that we'd not only be astounded by its matchless wonder, but be transformed 
by its extraordinary meaning. That your son was born to do what no one else could do because he was born like no one else was of you and your spirit from the very beginning. Which makes him in a unique sense your son so that even now we might pray in his name. Amen. The Bible is riddled with stories of remarkable births. Have you ever noticed that? Of Isaac being born to ancient Sarah at 90 years old. Of the twins, Jacob and Esau, being born to barren Rebekah. Of the 12 sons that were born to rival sisters and their two rival maidservants. Or the story of one of those 12 sons of, of Judah to whose, let's just say, resourceful daughter-in-law, Tamar, was born a son named Zerah and his twin Perez. And that's just Genesis. We could go on and recount the remarkable birth stories of Obed, born to foreign Ruth, or tangentially born to widowed Naomi. The story of Solomon, born to abused Bathsheba. And on and on and on. Because the Bible is riddled with stories of remarkable births. But why? Why all the focus on this rather messy aspect of human existence? Well, because in a lot of ways, that's what the Bible is all about. Did you know that? That's what the Bible is all about. It was through these births, because it was through these births that God was bringing about his plan to win his people back to himself. See, from the very beginning of human history, when humanity in the persons of Adam and Eve first walked away from God, and God's enemy in the form of a serpent first had his way with them, from the very beginning, God had promised that one day he'd change all that and give to Eve, through one of her offspring, a son that would one day crush the serpent's head. So as the sands of time began to, to sink after Cain killed Abel and another son was born to take not only Abel but, but really take Cain's place. At that time, God's people began recording the remarkable births of the promised line. Of Abraham, from whose offspring God had said the world would be blessed of Judah, of whom God said kings, and even the king of kings would come. And of David, whose son, God said, would rule forever. So one after another after another, God's book filled up with stories of remarkable births. To ancient Sarah and barren Rebecca and rival sisters and a resourceful daughter-in-law. But none so remarkable, not even close, as the birth to Virgin Mary. Which is fitting, right? Because the one born to Mary isn't just another piece of the puzzle. He's the picture. He's not just another limb in this family tree. He's the one at the end of the line. So it's fitting that no birth would be quite as remarkable as his. And that's what we're going to look at a little closer today at this remarkable birth 
of Jesus, specifically as it's been recorded in the gospel according to Matthew, beginning with the what of what made it so remarkable, and then turning our attention to the why of why it needed to be so. So the what and the why of this most remarkable birth. First, the what. What made Jesus' birth so remarkable? Which is worth reviewing even for those of us familiar with the story. And it's what Matthew focuses on beginning in verse 18. When he says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Really preparing to answer a question that Matthew himself raised, right? Because if you remember the the genealogy that we looked at last week, it was so methodical. One guy fathering another guy who was the father of another guy who was a, a father himself. So methodical that if you really wanted to, you could even write a song about it. Something like, God made a promise to Abraham. He said he's going to be great. He's going to give him land. But best of all, he's going to give him a what? A son who's going to have a son who's going to have a son who's going to have a son and 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 a son, right? So methodical until what? Until verse 16. Look at it there. Until verse 16 when the methodical nature of this genealogy is interrupted, when the pattern is broken, when at the end of that long line of one son fathering another son who fathers another son, it doesn't say that Jacob was the father of Joseph who was the father of Jesus, but that Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary from whom Jesus was born which is quite cryptic, right? Especially if the whole point of the genealogy is meant to present Jesus as God's fulfillment to the great promises God made to his people. It's quite cryptic. Why not just say that Jacob was the father of Joseph, the father of Jesus, no matter who his mother was, and that therefore by descent he is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, because behind this cryptic statement is the reality that Jesus was not the biological son of Joseph at all, but rather his adopted son through his marriage to Mary. So Matthew turns to answer now the question that he's raised by telling us, verse 18, the what, saying Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, probably a young teenager of 12 or 13, when Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, promised in marriage, the the footnote in your Bible may say, legally pledged. That's how it worked back then. They were pledged and maybe a year or so later then went to live with the husband under whose authority, under whose house they had come. When Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, but before they came together, it says, before they were living under one roof and and doing what married couples do, before they came together, it says, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Which you can imagine from the perspective of Joseph, whatever the explanation 
you can imagine would have come as quite a shock, right? I mean, more shocking than coming downstairs in the morning and finding someone's already broken into the box of good cereal, the box that you bought and intended to consume by yourself. Or maybe more to the point, coming down on Christmas morning and realizing that your car is missing, the one with the bow on it that you bought, right? Intending for it to be yours with just a little note left over from your neighbor saying, sorry, I took it for a test drive. Quite shocking. But just put yourself in that position for a moment. And really let that sink in. Because it's a little more than that. Because we sometimes think of this as an early on in the pregnancy kind of thing. Maybe right after Mary received the news herself. You know, from the angel Gabriel. But the grammar here suggests that this was a little later down the line. As if she hid those things in her heart as she would hide other things afterwards. And that this is something else because the grammar here suggests that this was, this was when she's found pregnant physically, when she's beginning to show. And perhaps you can imagine even what it would have been like in those awkward months leading up to that moment Joseph realized his fiancée was pregnant. When Mary starts wearing sweatpants and baggy shirts. You can imagine, right? And Joseph just thinks she's gotten used to the idea of being betrothed, right? I mean, you know how it goes. He just thinks Mary's gotten comfortable with the idea. Came back from a trip to her, her cousins with all these maternity clothes. He doesn't even know what those are. He's uh, connecting the dots. And who knows? Maybe Joseph's just a, a jeans and t-shirt kind of guy anyway. He strikes me as that way. But then he starts to wonder if he should say something about the weird eating habits, about the cravings for pickles and peanut butter, of all things, about Mary just letting herself go a little bit. Because she's starting to, to fill those sweatpants out. Those are the kind of thoughts, though, early on in a relationship that you suppress, right? Until one day he notices she's quite a bit bigger right around this region, right? And maybe she even has a glow about her, a, a, a certain smile that he, he can't quite figure out. Or, or, or maybe it was another kind of look when he noticed that she noticed that he was noticing her, when she knew that he knew or was at least beginning to know her secret. But Joseph pushes through those thoughts and pushes them aside until you could imagine the day that he can't ignore it anymore. And he, he knows the rule, right? He knows the rule. He knows that you are never under any circumstance whatsoever or which way about it supposed to ask a woman if she's pregnant. But he thinks to himself, there's got to be an exception, right, if it's your woman. There's got to be an exception if it's your woman and you don't think that you had anything to do with it. So you can imagine the surprise 
the shock that settles in when Mary was found to be with child. Which today would be a shame, right? But back then would have been a scandal. A young girl promised to a young man, kept for one another, but found to be with the child of another? That's just mid-morning TV these days. But back then, it would have cost Mary her future, perhaps even her life. It says a lot about Joseph, who being a just man, it says, a, a righteous man, a, a law-fearing and law-abiding man, was yet unwilling to put Mary to shame and to use the law against her. So verse 19 says, resolved to divorce her quietly. It says a lot about Joseph, which is about all you can expect of him, Right? What's unexpected, though, and remarkable in and of itself is the fact that Joseph changed his mind. How do you explain that? That Joseph changed his mind. How do you explain it apart from the explanation given in verse 20? It begs for the explanation that as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Not necessarily when, when he was asleep, but maybe a lot like Gabriel had come to, to Mary before this, that, that an angel now appears to Joseph saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Do not fear, not the shame or the blame, not the looks that you're going to get or the rumors that are going to start or the questions and doubts that are going to roll around in your own head. Do not fear. Why? Because this is not what you think or what others are going to think. This is not just another girl who's been taken advantage of or naively given herself away. This is something different. This is about solving all that. Because this is of God. This is remarkable. Because this child has in a more significant sense than any before, this child has been born of God. Which is the what. That Jesus Christ was born of a woman, a girl, who prior to his birth, never knew a man whose name tag would read not only Jesus, the son of Mary, perhaps the adopted son of Joseph, but the son of God. The what, though, that made this birth so remarkable pivots on the why why it needed to be so. And this is the real rub, because if you think about it, God had never done this before. God had never done this before, and it's safe to say he's never going to do it again. Just look at all those remarkable births with which the Bible is riddled. He never thought it necessary for any one of them to interrupt the normal, the normal he, her way of coming up with a baby. Sure, he orchestrated things. He played the matchmaker every now and again and such. But, but as far as we can tell, everybody before Jesus had a mom. 
and everybody had a dad. So why now? You don't need to look far after for an answer, though. It's right there before the angel stops speaking. He says to Joseph in verse 21, She will bear a son, and you shall name, call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, Yeshua, the God saves, and through this one, God will save, and in a way more than the original Yeshua, the original Joshua ever did. Call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You know, it's interesting in church history, after the writing of these gospels and the death of that first generation of Jesus' followers, that first generation that included individuals like Mary after Joseph had most likely passed away. It's interesting that afterwards, the miraculous conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit and virgin birth of Jesus by his mother was very quickly attached to the doctrine of Jesus' sinlessness. That Jesus, unlike the rest of humanity, was spared the sin nature the rest of us, regular born individuals, were doomed to inherit. Because unlike us, Jesus wasn't born under what my mom would call the fireworks. We were supposed to be a family of ten. There were a lot of fireworks going on in my house. Yet it's, it's worth noting, just pause for a moment, it's worth noting that in the New Testament, as far as I can tell, in the New Testament, and you can take the, this passage here in Matthew as an example. The notion that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, is never once used to establish Jesus' purity, but is rather always used, at least in a direct sense, to establish his divinity. And he's without sin because he's divine, but the point here is that he's divine. Not to say that Jesus had that sin nature. He didn't. But, but just that this medieval notion that, that he was spared that sin nature by being conceived apart from the supposed sinfulness of sex. A notion that's led to all sorts of other unbiblical ideas besides. If you want to know how it's attached to the latest news article on the latest, the latest nun who, who returned to her convent uh, bearing a child of her own, I can tell you, uh, and I draw that line for you, of how this is attached to all sorts of, of unbiblical things besides. But realize that that's, that's somewhere the Bible never goes. The Bible never goes there. No, Jesus is conceived by God's Spirit as a sign that he is God's Son. That's what this is all about. That's why the name tag is so important. Because he is the Son of God, adopted by Joseph to be the Son of David that all of us needed. But he is the Son of God. Because at least here, at the very beginning of Jesus' life, the concern isn't so much to establish Jesus being sinless. That will be established along the way, time and again. 
The point here is so much more to establish his ability to deal with us being sinful. A God-sized problem that requires a God-sized solution provided in the birth of the God-man, Jesus Christ. The why on which the what pivots. Because Jesus came not just as a, a rest for the weary, to deal with the enemy outside of us, that wages war against us, but came to deal with the enemy within us as the one we had sinned against. Before we finish up, though, let me just draw your attention to this prophecy, which Matthew says in verse 22, this all took place to fulfill. Saying, you can see it there, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means, Matthew says, God with us. Isn't that interesting that the angel tells Joseph to call his name Jesus? But then that Matthew says it was to fulfill the fact that, that they, presumably the people that Jesus would save, that they would call him something else. Isn't that interesting? What do you make of that? Especially given the fact that the, the prophet who spoke this some 700 years before this wasn't thinking about Jesus at all. What do you make of it? Because if you, you go back to Isaiah, the, the prophet behind this, it's, it's pretty clear that the sign he's talking about in that context, in the virgin giving birth, probably to him just a young girl. We've made more of this as a, as a, as a term in Hebrew than, than we probably should have. We've, we've gotten overly excited about it. Probably just a girl to him, a young girl. It's pretty clear that the sign is for Isaiah's own day. You can go back and read it, that the kingdom under Ahaz, the king in those days, would not fall to his enemies, but rather that his enemies, before the child came of age, would be wiped out themselves. How could that be talking about Jesus? Well, very likely, it wasn't. And let me explain. Very likely, the prophecy was talking of a child already conceived in Isaiah's day. That's the grammar of Isaiah 7.14, the verse quoted here. Talking of a child already conceived probably by Ahaz himself. A child who'd be born in Ahaz's harem, probably, to a, a young girl that Ahaz had most likely taken for his own pleasure, but who would signify nonetheless for Ahaz and the house of David on whose throne he sat, that rather than abandon his people, God's protective presence in the birth of a royal child was yet with them to deliver them out of their darkest days. And in the birth of, best we can tell, Hezekiah, they would see Emmanuel. 
problem, of course, is that the threat of wars and rumors of wars upon God's people would not take long to return. And it would set God's people looking for another sign. Sign Matthew would find as he reviewed the story of Christ and tried to make sense of the story of the most remarkable birth the Bible had ever known. So that in it, he'd see not just the fulfillment of some off-handed, out-of-context prediction, but the fulfillment and filling up of a, of a pattern laid out by God who had worked all history to this good end. Which is actually quite a bit more powerful than the way we traditionally think of these things. Not that God didn't make more predictive statements along the way to individuals like Abraham and King David in the, the form of some of the greatest promises he ever made. He can do that. He's God. But that here, this isn't about God's ability to bring to pass a, a 700-year-old fortune cookie that he hid into the text somewhere, but rather about God working all history around his good purposes. When not just a young woman, but an actual virgin, Matthew's making the point, would conceive by the Holy Spirit, not some sex-crazed King Ahaz. No. And would conceive a son of such higher significance than Hezekiah that He'd not only be a sign of God with us in the darkness, but as one author has put it, he'd be through the darkness the with us God. That after Mary and Joseph called him Jesus, we would forever more and ever after be hailing him Emmanuel. This is where God is with us most when God finally showed up to save us from what we needed saving from. Let me just leave you with two thoughts. To remember this Christmas what Jesus saves us from and what Jesus saves us for. First, to remember what Jesus came to save us from. That he came, first and foremost, born to die to save us from sin. It's not a word our, word our culture likes, but that is the fact. To, to save us from the, the punishment of sin and the power of sin and the persistence of sin and the presence of sin. And we ought not, therefore, disregard what Jesus did on our behalf by either dismissing its importance or devaluing its worth. Because on the one hand, we got to remember that Jesus came to do what we needed most. Don't dismiss its importance. Because if we merely needed someone to fix our aching bones, God would have sent a rheumatologist. Or if what we really needed was someone to fix our pumping hearts, he would have sent a cardiologist or a psychologist to fix our convoluted minds or a nutritionist to fix our convoluted eating habits, maybe a therapist or whatever. 
But that's not who he sent. Because that's not what we needed most. He sent a Savior to get under all that, to save us from our sins, which is a God-sized problem that requires a God-sized solution provided in the birth of a God-sized Savior. Don't dismiss its importance or devalue its worth because sometimes we, we think that saving us from sin is, is the on-ramp, but then we get, get on to everything else. When in fact, the picture painted for us in the Bible is that our enjoyment of everything else is dependent on our ongoing war with sin. So the Apostle Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then elsewhere, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Or even Jesus says twice later in the Gospel of Matthew, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, whoever rids himself of the, the life he once knew, that one will find it. So let me encourage you to, to not dismiss the importance or devalue its worth, but rather to remember what Jesus came to save us from. And to do that, even this holiday season, by, by taking up the fight again, against that long-standing habit that's distracted you from knowing him, to, to, to invite someone else into that. It's one of God's graces in this world, to invite someone else into that out of worship for him. And even to just name it as a first step in the fight. Here is elders, really, of KBC to walk alongside of you. That's what we want to be a body doing walking alongside of one another. So do it together, but do it. Take up the fight again out of worship for Jesus and in dependence on him. I'd encourage you to pursue that. But secondly, as you remember what Jesus came to save us from, remember also what Jesus came to save us for. For things like, and I'm just going to say it, for things like sex, for things like sex and other things like it. For things that we've been meant to enjoy in this world. Things that were made for us to enjoy that through them we might enjoy Him. That we were saved for such things. That's what it means to be saved in the Gospel of Matthew. That we're ripped out of, of all the perversions of these things and set free to enjoy them again but to enjoy them as they're meant to be enjoyed, as, as ways, not to things to be enjoyed for themselves, but as ways to enjoy God and to enjoy our Savior, Jesus Christ. He, he's done this. Jesus came to save us from the darkest parts of our perversion of those things, that we might enjoy these things once again in the light. Which is what salvation, again, is all about not dour faces and dire attitudes but the enjoyment of this world and the kingship of the one who made it we sometimes think that coming to christ somehow limits us to the mundane mediocrity and monotony of muted colors and muffled music 
It couldn't be farther from the truth. Salvation is, is about waking us to this world. Not subduing it, but waking us under Christ to enjoy the world as it was meant to be enjoyed, as it, it was designed to be enjoyed, as we will one day enjoy it when it's made anew. To enjoy the world as it was meant to be. And to, again, do so for the greater enjoyment of him. That's what he saved us for, and that he would be the with us God in all of life. Let me encourage you, though, that with that, there is a specific sense that Jesus has saved us to join him in saving this world. And that's really where Matthew goes with it in this gospel. That Jesus says, yes, that he's with his disciples when the storm strikes and saves them from it. But he's also with them when he sends them out to be received or rejected in their preaching of the kingdom. That's later on. That he's with them even, even still. That he's with them as they walk through the difficult duties of holding wayward followers accountable. That's when he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. The hard work of cutting off, pruning the branches when a branch will not bear fruit. As he says that he is finally with them as he sends them out to make disciples of all nations. When he says, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Remember what he saves us from this Christmas. But remember likewise what he saves us for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the midst of a book with a lot of remarkable births, I thank you that the most remarkable among them, not even close, was the birth of your son, Jesus. And I thank you that in him, you showed up to solve a God-sized problem that needed a God-sized solution for which you provided in his death and resurrection a God-sized Savior. In his name I pray these things. Amen. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.